the bar for Trump is so low. It's like being in a spelling bee with a basset hound. <laughs> really? Yeah, and that's kind of the problem, isn't it? Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something ain't right. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. That might be a little scary today. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Here I am. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle with you. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. 91.7 91.7 FM KYAQ on Oregon Central Coast, 106.7 FM Queso in Cottage Grove, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on 93 FM WLRI, in Hawaii on 88.5 FM KAKU, the voice of Maui, in Columbus, Ohio on WGRN 94.1 FM, in Palinville, New York on 102.9 FM WLPP, And in Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM 950 KTNF, the progressive voice of Minnesota. And we are streaming coast to coast and around the globe on the internets on the Progressive Voices channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com Radio, Free Brooklyn, GDPR, Revolution 99, Detour Talk, Radio Monterey, and Radio Sputnik, blanketing planet Earth five days a week. You found us. We are the Bradcast. I am Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow from bradblog.com, trying to make some sense of it all indeed. By the way, 56 years ago today was the very first televised presidential debate between Richard Nixon and John F. Kennedy back in 1960. On Monday night, this Monday night, the two major political party candidates, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, face off head-to-head for the first time in the first presidential debate of 2016 at Hofstra University in New York, which is home turf of a sort to both of the candidates, to the New York-born businessman and the former U.S. senator from the state of New York. Are you excited about it? Uh, excited about it? Desi I Lyon? don't think "excited" is the word. I or "dreading." I dreading? Think would be the word really? Would yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, I think you're not alone uh, today in uh, in these United States. There has been, of course, for the past few days uh, over the weekend and and leading up to the debate, plenty of chatter everywhere you look. Uh, really, about the presidential debate, the expectations for it, uh, what she must do, what he must do, uh, what he and she mustn't do, what they will do. Whether the moderators will do any fact-checking. Right. uh, So we'll let others do that. We'll let others make those predictions about what, you know, everyone's going to see. Because, frankly, they're all just making it up. They're all just making stuff up. They're filling airtime. They're best-guessing it. Uh, and, and by now, uh, the debate for some of you, uh, for some of our affiliates uh, who listen, uh, who, who carry the show a few hours later uh, or podcast listeners for some, uh, the debate may be done. So I, I want to take a look today uh, shortly at some of the election stuff that isn't related to the presidential contest and that almost nobody, frankly, seems to be talking about in the national corporate media with Donald Trump sucking all of the oxygen out of the uh, national electorate here and out of the media. But there are other things going on 
including in these upcoming elections that is getting very little attention. For example, how can it be the Democrats keep winning more votes for the U.S. House in these presidential elections, but they can't they still can't seem to win a majority of seats there. So much, though, the Democrats are not even talking about regaining the House, even as they're now predicted to not even, or at least it's going to be close, but uh, uh, several polling uh, aggregators now find, uh, from the New York Times to the Washington Post, find that it is unlikely the Democrats will even gain back a majority in the U.S. Senate. Uh, winning control of the U.S. Senate was thought to be a damn near a shoe in for Democrats a few months ago, even a few years ago, leading into this uh, general election this year, where the unpopular Republicans are going to have to protect some 26 GOP Senate seats. That's a lot to protect. And Democrats were pretty excited about it. They thought for sure they were going to win back the U.S. Senate. Now, that's not quite so clear. But the insanely gerrymandered U.S. House, that's another matter altogether. And once again, despite the unpopularity of the Republican Party, the House is not even considered to be up for grabs anymore in any way once again this year, which to me is absolutely amazing after the past several years of what Republicans have done in Congress in both the U.S. Senate and the U.S. House. And, of course, the the popularity of Democratic ideas over Republican ideas. Democrats are much more popular in that regard. So we'll speak with the author of a brand new book with a name that I'm not even allowed to say on FCC radio. Going to have to figure out how to deal with that in a second. Anyway, he will join us to explain how it is that the U.S. electoral system became so seemingly intractably broken and frankly, at odds with small d democratic principles themselves, thanks to a few ingenious GOP operatives, uh, a misleading and unhelpful U.S. corporate media, and uh, frankly, the Democratic Party, as usual, at asleep at the switch. We'll get into that momentarily. First, though, uh, as as we look at the uh, political moment right now, just hours before the first presidential debate. Uh, I was looking at uh, Nate Silver. I know a lot of folks are looking at Nate Silver, 538.com, one of the best predictors uh, for for polls, for elections and so forth, a uh, data journalist, journalism site. Uh, and he was looking at where we are at this political moment. And um, a couple of things. He did a, a piece looking at 10 different questions, where the race stands heading into the first debate. Uh, one of the questions, and I'm going to just pull out a couple of uh, points that I found particularly of note here today. How do the fundamentals look? Uh, well, non-polling factors, Nate Silver writes, such as economic conditions, um, suggest that a race between a generic Democrat, any old uh, Democrat, and a generic Republican, any old Republican, not Donald Trump, um, that those factors would make this year's election very close. In that sense, Silver writes, it shouldn't be hard to see how Donald Trump could win this year. He either becomes normalized enough, and here's the danger, uh, he either becomes normalized enough that he performs about the same as a generic Republican would do, or he significantly underperforms a generic Republican, but Clinton's problems are seen as just being that terrible that it gives him uh, a, a, a way in. 
Well, right now, uh, he is busily normalizing himself. I think that's one of the dangers. We'll see what comes out of the uh, out of the debate. But uh, the bar, again, is so low for Donald Trump that if he doesn't do something crazy, uh, he'll be seen as uh, doing fine as. Uh, oh, look, he's he's normal. He's just like a Mitt Romney. He's just like a, a, a John McCain. And I think, uh, well, you know, I don't want to predict what's going to happen in this debate because nobody knows. But I think that's what we've been seeing of late as he's sticking to the teleprompter, as he's becoming more, quote unquote, presidential. Nate Silver says, what would keep me up late at night if I were Hillary Clinton? He says, you mean other than the fact that the election keeps getting closer and closer every time I look? He said, as I wrote in July, I'd be worried that Americans come to view the race as one between two equally terrible choices instead of Trump being uniquely unacceptable. In particular, he writes, I'd be worried that my brand, he's talking about Hillary here, that my brand has irrevocably been tarnished with a reputation for dishonesty between Trump's knack for exploiting this weakness, for example, calling her crooked Hillary from the beginning, the news media's tendency to frame events as contributing to my honesty and trust problem, and some leftover hard feelings from the primaries. Clinton has yet to win over many of the millennials, for example, who voted for Bernie Sanders. He says uh, she, should, she would be worried that I'm generally losing when polls ask who the more trustworthy candidate is. In the short term, I'd be worried that the talk of Trump's low expectations at the first uh, debate is a tip-off that the media hive mind might frame a debate tie as a win. So even if they do well, even if both of them do well, even if both of them finish uh, as a tie, that, in fact, would be considered a, uh, a win for Donald Trump. Bill Maher talked about this on uh, on Real Time over the weekend. Hillary has been preparing uh, for the debate, of course, as she does. But you know what? Does it matter? The bar for Trump is so low. It's like being in a spelling bee with a basset hound. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, she knew all the words, but you know what? I like the fact that that dog knew not to shit on the floor. I yeah, that's kind of where we are when it comes to the expectations game right now. Uh, and the polls very much bear this out. Uh, if you haven't been reading uh, 538.com lately, they have sort of three different uh, ways that they look to predict the results of the race based on polls. They're not telling us who's up and who's down on the polls. They're taking all the polls, they're aggregating it, they're putting it together with different information, uh, economic information, historical information from each of the states, how they tend to vote, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And guess what? Right now, for the first time, if the election was held today, According to 538.com's Nowcast, the chances, the chances of winning for the two candidates put Donald Trump. They are giving Donald Trump a 51.9% chance of beating oh boy. Hillary Clinton. Her chances of, uh, of winning are 48.1, according to the 538 Nowcast. That is, if the election was held today, Donald Trump would end up with exactly 270 electoral votes. And that's what you need to win, 270 electoral votes. 
Uh, Clinton would uh, lose by just two electoral votes, uh, again, if the election was held today. Of course, it's not held today. It's going to be held in about a little over 50 days at this point, according to the their what they call their polls plus um, uh, a predictor. Clinton is uh, still ahead. Polls plus, meaning it takes in uh, polls into account, historical information and so forth, the economy. Uh, right now in the polls plus, it's incredibly close. It's largely a 50-50 match with uh, Clinton leading Trump uh, having a 52.9 percent probability, I guess, uh, a probability of beating Donald Trump. In that, uh, in that uh, setup, in the polls plus, she gets 273 electoral votes, just enough to win. The best, uh, the best situation for her is polls only, the, the, the set of data that looks only at the polls, and under that, her chances are 54.6% chance of beating Donald Trump. His odds are uh, down at 45.4%. So, again, just over 50-50. And in that event, she gets 276 electoral votes of the 270 that she would need to win. That's really close. Yeah, that's really close. That's really close. And, of course, none of their uh, uh, figuring over their computations over there at 538 uh, actually take into account things like the voter suppression that is going to go on, the chaos that's going to happen with the photo IDs. It doesn't take into account the Bradley effect where people lie to pollsters and so forth. Um, it doesn't take into account failures of voting machines, hacking of voting machines, manipulation of voting machines. All of that is not even on the radar over there at 538.com. So uh, back to the polls. Let me give you this uh, just in this uh, late uh, national poll from Bloomberg. A new Bloomberg politics poll shows Hillary Clinton, Donald Trump tied at 46 percent nationally in a two way race heading into the first debate. Uh, Wednesday, September 21st through Saturday, September 24th. That's when this poll was taken. It is the most recent major national phone survey, and it is of likely voters. Clinton had a six-point advantage on Trump in this same two-way race uh, back in uh, back in August, mid-August. Now it is tied in a two-way race. There are signs that Clinton's margins with women and young voters have eroded over the past three months, they say, helping to explain Trump's catch up here. In particular, among likely voters under 35 years old, Clinton gets 50 percent to Trump's 40 percent. That's down from what had been a 29 point margin among those voters in a two way race. But here's the reason I want to bring this out in a four person race that includes uh, Johnson, Gary Johnson of the Libertarian Party and Green Party nominee Jill Stein, Trump leads Trump leads Clinton in a four-way race nationally, 43 to 41 percent, with Johnson receiving 8 percent and Stein receiving 4 percent. So that means two things. He is now leading nationally, at least according to this latest poll, among likely voters, and it also means... That in a in a four way race uh, with those other candidates, with uh, Jill Stein and Gary Johnson on the ballot, uh, Trump does even better. That means that those uh, third party candidates, Johnson and Stein, are pulling more voters from Hillary Clinton currently than they are from Donald Trump. 
So, uh, and and this matches up with other polls that we've seen, where we look at it, uh, we take you know talk to Gary Johnson supporters and ask them, well, if you couldn't vote for. Uh, Gary Johnson, who would you vote for? If you had to vote for Trump or, or uh, Hillary, who would you vote for? More voters say they would vote for Hillary Clinton of those Johnson supporters, for example. So uh, he, Gary Johnson, the third party, and uh, no doubt Jill Stein are now pulling more voters from Hillary Clinton than they are pulling from Donald Trump. Keep that in mind, particularly if you're in a swing state. And you're unhappy with Hillary Clinton, you are a Bernie Sanders supporter, uh, and uh, you think your vote won't make a difference. Your vote could well push the election to Donald Trump. You may be fine with that. That's okay. I just want to make sure that you know that. Uh, Similarly, uh, but that's national. So when we get down to state-by-state polls here... Uh, we have some new information. So I was I was mentioning at 538, they've got this long sort of snaking line showing all of the states in the country where they're fall where the polls show them leaning, uh, leaning towards Clinton or leaning towards Trump, et cetera. And right now, uh, if all the states that are leaning towards Clinton and all the states that are leaning towards Trump actually go that way, then Hillary Clinton is the next president. However, if any one of those states right there in the middle end up going for Trump instead of Clinton, uh, it's hello, President Trump. Uh, Nate Silver writes in his piece about where the uh, race stands as we head into the first debate. He says there's not any one key state, which is part of the reason the election remains uncertain as far as which state shapes up as the most important. There is not just one. Instead, the various swing states are currently lined up on either side of the gap, with Clinton leading in some states in in states representing 272 electoral votes, accounting for Trump's probable win in Maine's second congressional district and Trump ahead in states totaling 266 electoral votes. He says in any of the states just to Clinton's side of the gap, if any of those states slips towards Trump, that would be Pennsylvania, Colorado, New Hampshire, Wisconsin, and Michigan. Those are the closest right now that are on Clinton's side. Um, those are the most plausible can- uh, uh, states to uh, plausibly flip. Then Donald Trump pulls ahead in the Electoral College. So if just Colorado flips, Donald Trump is the next president. Conversely, he notes that Trump leads by less than one percentage point in states like Florida, barely more than one in uh, in North Carolina. And if any of those go to Clinton, then uh, Trump's electoral math becomes very diff- uh, difficult. The same, he notes, is theoretically true for Ohio, although Trump has had a more consistent lead there in Ohio, a larger lead there in Ohio. So uh, Ohio may be quickly uh coming off the map as far as something that could be flipped uh, back to Hillary Clinton at this point. But so let's look very quickly. I know we got to get to a break here, uh, but at Pennsylvania and Colorado right now, new poll from CNN ORC out today. This is a poll that is uh, rated A minus a top uh, one of the top polls, top tier polls uh, from 538 finds that now just one point separates Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump in both uh, Pennsylvania and Colorado, two states critical to each candidate and their chances of becoming president. In Colorado, likely voters break 42 percent for Trump, 41 for Clinton. That's right. According to this poll, Donald Trump now leads by one point, with 13 percent going to libertarian Gary Johnson and 3 percent for Green Party Jill Stein. Keep that in mind, Colorado voters. 
if Colorado at this rate goes to Trump, he's the next president. So if you're a supporter of Gary Johnson, if you're a supporter of Jill Stein, uh, yeah, your vote matters. Your vote does matter. And if you're cool with Trump becoming president, well, then that's cool. Vote for Gary Johnson and Jill Stein. If you have a concern about Trump becoming president, you might want to keep that in mind. Pennsylvania's likely voters split uh, the other way. One point for Clinton ahead of Trump, 45 to 44. In that case, uh, in Pennsylvania, 6% are voting for Johnson, 3% for Stein. That's in the four-way race. That's where we are. This is absolutely tied nationally and at these uh, various uh, state levels. Now, there are some polls that go a little bit more this way, a little bit more that way. But that is essentially where we are as we head into the uh, as we head into the first presidential debate. There's a lot that can change between here and there. But uh, I think the electorate needs to be clear on where we are and what are the results of their vote, depending on how they want to vote. All right. Speaking of the way people vote and the way they want to vote, we're going to take a quick break here and come back with uh, how the Republicans uh, have managed to capitalize not just on crazy, uh, but with money and math and voters while Democrats weren't even paying attention. Are they paying attention this time? I'm not entirely sure. Quick break, and we're back with more Bradcast and my guest right after this. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't go away. Hey, this is Brad. What the public hears over the public airwaves matters. Without an informed electorate, we've got, well, we've got what we have right now. We do our best on the broadcast five days a week to balance that with accurate reporting on issues that actually matter. We don't always get it right, but we try like hell to do so. And we do it all independently and without the influence of corporate or political funding. But we can't do it without you. Please don't presume others will step up. We need you to help us keep doing what Desi Doyen and myself try to do every day on the broadcast. Please help us continue to do so by going to bradblog.com slash donate to help keep the Bradcast going and telling the truth over your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com slash donate. Don't wait. Please stop by today. Thanks. Country. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Uh, in the last presidential election in 2012, Democrats, they did pretty great. Barack Obama uh, won a second term and Democrats in the U.S. House won uh, 1.4 million votes more than Republicans did. Nonetheless, they still lost 33 House seats. How can that be? 
Well, that was all thanks in part or perhaps thanks in whole to the Republican redistricting efforts that began with a whole lot of money at the local level around the country following the uh, 2010 elections. That was a uh, that was a census year. And that meant that whoever controlled state legislatures would control the U.S. House redistricting maps in those particular states. And boy, howdy, uh, did the Republicans do that in a big way after their big 2010 Tea Party wins across the country that year. It, it has arguably been that 2010 redistricting that has entrenched the Republicans in safe districts, allowing them seemingly total control of the U.S. House. And because they're uh, uh, they are the majority there and that seems to be insidiously something that will remain locked in forever because of these safe districts that have been drawn by them. It has given them no need at all to even consider compromising with Democrats. Why should they? After all, they get little, if any, competition from Democrats in those hard right Republican districts. And the only thing they need to worry about, it seems, are primary challengers from the right. And with that, American democracy has become more entrenched, has become entrenched in a now seemingly unending partisan divide where Republicans no longer find any political need to compromise and the Democratic Party policies, which remain more po uh, popular with the majority of the American people, they are unable to really get anywhere thanks to what seems to be the permanently gerrymandered GOP control of the U.S. House. We've been speaking a lot, of course, about the presidential race this year and uh, recently both the New York Times and the Washington Post uh, announced that it looks like the uh, Republicans could well retain control of the U.S. Senate in a year that Democrats thought they might finally win that Senate back. But we haven't gotten to talk much about the U.S. House documenting this entire fine mess. Uh, and it is a fine mess for democracy. In his brand spanking new book is David Daly. He is the author of, uh, well, a book that uh, we'll talk about the title in a minute. Because I'll, I'll have trouble saying it here on the radio. In any event, David Daly is the former editor-in-chief of Salon. And uh, he's a digital media fellow at the University of Georgia's Grady School of Journalism. I'm very delighted to have him on. David Daly, welcome to the broadcast, sir. Hey, Brad. Thank you for having me on. It's a pleasure. It's great to have you here. And by way of full disclosure, David, uh, you were, until not long ago, also my editor at Salon.com. Uh, but you're gone there. You're not there anymore. So do I still have to be overly nice to you, or can I just uh, treat you like any other guest? I guess I'm just any other guy now. Fire away with the hardest questions you possibly can. Okay, here they come. Actually, by the way, here's, here's the first one. I I'm not actually able to say the title of your book. <laughs> Without facing a fine here on FCC radio, it's not. I tell you, one of the most yeah. fun things about this has been doing uh, <laughs> been doing NPR shows and watching NPR hosts oh. dance around the title. Uh, well, well, what do they? Well, here's what here's here's my solution. Let me call the book for now. Rat flipped the true That's story. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. Thank you. Uh, the true story behind the secret plan to steal America's democracy. So we'll call it Rat Flipped for now. Uh, what, what, what has NPR been calling it, Dave? Most of them go with Rat Eft, although I think my favorite one is still the person who called it Rat Ducked. 
and then said it rhymes with that. Okay. And that to me seemed very, very dangerous. It, it was that was right on the edge. It, it does. So thanks for saying it here and getting me close to in trouble, Dave. Uh, all right. So. <laughs> Uh, let, let's talk about this. Uh, the, the book uh, focuses, whatever we want to call it, it focuses on something called Operation Red Map, uh, which stands for the Redistricting Majority Project. But what exactly is uh, is the uh, project, the Operation Red Map that the uh, Republicans carried out so brilliantly uh, in the in the in the 2010 election and then thereafter? It is nothing short of the most audacious political heist of our time. The Republican State Leadership Committee, Mm -hmm. which is helmed by Ed Gillespie, Mm -hmm. a very savvy strategist named Chris Jankowski, with a lot of input from Karl Rove and a lot of others Mm -hmm. who are are big brand names, they realize in the months and year heading up to the 2010 election Mm -hmm. that 2008 might have been a wipeout for the Republicans, Mm -hmm. but that did not matter if they could win in 2010, because the census requires that you redraw every district line in every state legislature and in the Congress every 10 years, and that if they could come up with the money, they came up with a brand new idea. Gerrymandering goes back to 1788. You can trace it back to the founding of the Republic. Mm -hmm. It had never been used in quite this way before in order to lock in partisan control of a chamber for a decade or more by a party who feared that they would be in the minority if they did not come up with this plan. They raised $30 million from Chamber of Commerce, from Mm -hmm. the Koch brothers, from sort of, you know, big Republican donors, Walmart, AT&T, and they essentially target control of state legislatures across the country. Is that, uh, let me jump in for a second, Dave, because I, I want to ask you about, uh, I, uh, you know, you mentioned that they realized that 2010 was a census year uh, and how that would affect redistricting. And I want to talk about the Democrats part in that. Mm-hmm. Where the hell were they? But when you say gerrymandering has been done uh, forever, at least since the 1800s, but this was different. How was this different? What 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 did they do in 2010? Thirty million dollars actually doesn't doesn't seem like all that much uh, in in today's political dollars. No, but, it's not. It's political money ball. It's a great. Yeah. It's an amazing bargain. They they found the last available bargain. Gerrymandering had been sort of honor amongst thieves. Um, both parties did it together mm-hmm. in order to protect their incumbents. Uh, perhaps occasionally they would. Uh, you know, stick a knife in the back of someone they didn't like or as mm-hmm. a weapon for partisan control. Um, it has. N- it was not used as a decade-long strategy for locking in gains. And really what happens is the Republicans have this idea mm-hmm. at a time when the technology makes it so easy mm. to draw perfect districts. Right now, a determined partisan mapmaker has access to volumes of census data and voting records and reams of consumer preferences, mm-hmm. as well as powerful computer programs that can instantly calculate the result of moving a line a block in any direction. Mm. They can calculate algorithms that are designed to withstand electoral waves. It's the data, the technology, and the ease and certainty with which they can be manipulated 
that makes the post-2010 redistricting cycle so fundamentally different from any other in the modern era. But Democrats also have access to that same computer technology. And, and, and by the way, as you speak about this, uh, uh, the use of these computers, the word surgical precision comes to mind because we've been talking a lot about North Carolina and their, yeah. their voter suppression laws were knocked down after the uh, federal court recently found that they were targeting African-Americans with surgical precision. But Democrats have uh, the access to these same uh, computer programs. Uh, as you note in your book, they were, uh, you know, feeling pretty, riding pretty high back in 2008 with their uh, with, with their computer databases, uh, you know, all over the country. What 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 what's the difference here in the Republicans use of uh, uh, computers to redistrict maps than than what was accessible to Democrats at the time? The Obama people in 2008 come up with a terrific way to identify and turn out voters. What the Republicans do in 2010 is come up with a really effective way to draw lines to box in the Democratic voters in as few districts as they possibly can, while claiming the rest of the districts for themselves, and knowing that even if they drew districts that looked competitive, they knew who voted Mm -hmm. They knew the voter turnout. They could tell everything about you from your social media likes to your magazine subscriptions to the kinds of things you purchase and the things you look up in search engines. They can tell this by precinct level, block level specificity. Right. And the computers become so good that something that would have taken you days to do even in the 2000 cycle you can do it immediately now and see what the effect of it is. Um, what the Republicans had was the idea to shift the paradigm of thinking mm -hmm. around gerrymandering. The Democrats didn't have the imagination to come up mm. with this idea. They considered gerrymandering the exact same thing that it had been since Patrick Henry in 1788 and Elbridge Gerry in, in mm -hmm. 1790. They considered it a tool for sort of protecting their incumbents and holding on to what they had. The Republicans came up with a bolder, smarter initiative that they were going to use this as a partisan hammer to take control and hold it. And and so is it fair to say the difference is they understood the Republicans, uh, Ed Gillespie, uh, Christian Kowski, Karl Rove, et cetera, that they understood that if we can put money, if we can win these specific uh, areas of, uh, of various states around the country, then we can take the legislatures and then we can use that specifically, the state legislatures, to specifically get at the U.S. House majority. Is that the difference in, you in thinking of it that way? You have nailed the exact plan. You've nailed the exact plan. <sighs> what they did was they sat down and they said, if we want to take over Congress and mm -hmm. state legislatures, how would we do it? And every state has a different process. And they went and they said, well, okay, let's say we want to take over Pennsylvania. Well, in Pennsylvania we would need the House mm -hmm. and the Senate and the governor's office. Say we want to take over North Carolina. Well, there, all we need is the state legislature and the Senate. The governor has no role in the process. So you begin the process of targeting enough individual state legislators in these states to flip control of the chambers. Uh, Karl Rove writes in the Wall Street Journal 
in March of 2010. He announces the plan, Mm -hmm. and he writes that Republican strategists are focused on 107 seats in 16 states, and that if they won those seats, it would give them control of drawing district lines for 190 congressional seats. Mm -hmm. You had states like Pennsylvania, where the House was 102 Democrats, 101 Mm -hmm. Republicans. So a part of what they spent their $30 million on was flipping a handful of seats in Pennsylvania, coming in in the last four weeks of campaigns with an overwhelming avalanche of dark money and negative ads and, and into the- these small little towns, and they knocked out enough state legislators to take control of these districts and draw themselves impregnable lines in both the state legislatures and in the congressional delegations. And, and, and that's, what, yeah, I was, was going to say, these, so these were state races that they were targeting, usually, yeah. I guess, off the radar of the uh, sort of the, the, the national parties. The, the, you know, and incredibly the inexpensive. Uh, but th- now let me press you on this. Uh, inexpensive, yeah, because yeah, there's just not a lot of competition there. There's not a lot of national money there. And they it sounds like they refocus that national money into these state races to then ultimately win the biggest uh, national prize of, of them all with the U.S. House. The, but the subtitle of your book, um, the, the, the part of it that I can say on the air, the true story behind the secret plan to steal American democracy. So let me press you on two points here. First, uh, what was so secret? about this plan. You yourself said that Karl Rove was out there talking about it in the Wall Street uh, Journal. And also, didn't we all know that 2010 uh, was a redistricting year? I mean, what's the big secret about that? I mean, and, and finally, I'll th- throw in a third question. Can any of this really be considered stealing, as your subtitle says, uh, in as much as it was done, as far as I know, legally, and it was more than st- less than stealing? It seems more like outsmarting the Democrats in this case, no? This is what I get for leaving the salon. I get all the hard questions. Now. See? See? Told See, this you. This is what happens when I'm no longer your editor. Well, um, that's right. You are correct. I think <laughs> that uh, I think that if there's one word that is hyperbole in this title, it is, it is secret, because in some ways what they did was in plain sight. Karl Rove announces the plan in flashing neon lights in mm-hmm. the, one of the biggest newspapers in the country. Right. And the Democrats... It's a secret because Democrats didn't see it, they didn't react, they didn't have the imagination to come up with this themselves, they didn't even have the common sense to play good defense against it. Um, Rove says where they're going to go. He's like, we're going to go into Brushy Creek in Round Rock, Texas, and uh, you know, West Lafayette, Indiana. He mentions these small towns where they were going to go six months later and blow out these small-town legislators, and take control of the U.S. House. Um, They knew exactly what they were going to do, and the Democrats never had a a way Mm -hmm. to go up against it. Um, I think that sometimes, however, we still think that gerrymandering is something that both sides do. Mm -hmm. And we think that it is politics as usual, and it's part of the game. And you see that in the media coverage now in the New York Times, especially about which side is going to take the House. They talk about these district lines as if they were, uh, you know, sculpted by Jesus um, and, <laughs> and that they were hand-delivered on, on a stone. They were not. They are drawn specifically and intentionally 
and they were drawn in 2010 and 2011 with more specific partisan design than ever. It is entirely legal. However, it is also entirely and deeply undemocratic. We are perhaps the only democracy in the world that allows politicians to draw their own lines and to choose their own voters. And we are about seven or so weeks out from a presidential election. Mm -hmm. And we can already say with 99 and 44 one-hundredths certitude that the Republicans are going to keep control of the House of Representatives, which is the body designed to be most responsive to the people. This is something we ought to be outraged about. It might be legal, but it is it ought to be precipitating a serious constitutional crisis when the body that is supposed to be the most democratic is not. And when our institutions fail to be responsive to the voters, in fact, become insulated from the voters like they are, it not only damages our politics, it just it just completely undermines the idea that this is a representative democracy. I'm speaking to David Daly, author of the brand spanking new book that we'll call Rat Flipped, the true story behind the secret plan to steal America's democracy. Uh, David, uh, you mentioned uh, that uh, a lot of times the media refer to this as false balance, that uh, both both sides do it. Both parties do, mm-hmm. in fact, uh, gerrymander uh, districts, I think, when they control the uh, the, the state legislature. So um, d- do you see in, in the course of uh, working on your book and researching your book, when you look at the difference between the districts that were drawn by uh, Republicans versus the di- uh, the districts that were drawn by uh, states controlled by Democrats. Is there actually, do you actually see a difference uh, physically in the way those lines are drawn? And, and one of the reasons I'm asking here is because there's the question of, well, how should these congressional districts uh, be uh, drawn? It does seem like, you know, in states where Republicans are in charge, they always want nonpartisan redistricting. We see this coming up time and time again in Ohio, uh, it, where Democrats are in charge. Um, they want nonpartisan redistricting, uh, or actually, I should say that's the other way around. Uh, right. But you understand my my point here. I do. They're I always do. saying it's um, unfair. So, what do you see when you actually look at those maps? Uh, well, let me give you yeah. the numbers on this. In 2011, Republicans had complete control over the drawing of 193 congressional districts. Mm -hmm. That's out of 435. You need 218 for a majority. They drew 193 themselves. The Democrats drew 44 on their own. So that's about four and a half times Mm -hmm. fewer. So when the numbers are that imbalanced, Mm -hmm. it presents a real problem if you want to talk about how both sides do it. Um, But then if you look state by state, you can see what the Republicans did so effectively. You look at a state like Ohio, which is the ultimate 50-50 bellwether in this country. In 2012, the first year in which these maps are being used, Republicans get a handful more votes than Democrats if you add up all of the House votes in the state. But they take 12 of the 16 seats. In Michigan, Democrats get 240,000 more votes statewide. Republicans take nine of the 14 seats. Mm. In Pennsylvania, Democrats get almost 100,000 more votes. Republicans take 13 Mm. of the 18 seats. 
North Carolina, Democrats narrowly more votes. Republicans take 10 of the 13 seats. Um, so these lines are being drawn by Republicans in a very different way than they are in the other states. Right. If you were to look at a couple of states that, that the Democrats have done this in, uh -huh. uh, there are a couple of districts in Maryland that you would look at and say, I think if you want to look at this fairly, you look at this as a question of percentage of seats and percentage of votes. Mm -hmm. And where that is entirely out of whack, mm -hmm. you say, okay, something was done here that there's a problem. That and it's sense. never going to correspond exactly. Um, but in most of the states where the Democrats draw lines, say Illinois, um, you have a reasonably approximate version uh -huh. of, of votes to seats. I got Maryland you. would be the example where the Democrats stole a seat or two, but they stole that seat or two very much by using the old paradigm of trying to create a couple of incumbent protection mm -hmm. seats. Uh, you know, back in uh, 2008, uh, David Daly, uh, of course, we all knew that was going to be a huge election. Mm -hmm. It was the end of yeah. the Bush years. But I also remember believing after 2008, or at least thinking, you know, that 2010, while it wouldn't be anywhere near as big, obviously, as, as the presidential election 2008, uh, it would still be a huge election. Uh, I remember thinking that um, because at least as far as the Democratic Party interests were concerned, they would think that because it was a census year. And plus, remember at that point, Dave, we had all of this uh, redistrict. We had that mid-year redistricting, uh, uh, mid-census redistricting yeah. controversy with Tom DeLay. He had pulled that off so successfully in, in, in Texas during the George W. Bush years. So you would think Democrats would understand that 2010 was going to be an important year because it it was a redistricting year, but it didn't really even seem to be on the radar, as I remember it, uh, for Democrats. They didn't make a big deal out of that. And then, of course, we know that Republicans went on to have huge Tea Party gains that year. In working on your book, what did Democrats have to say about what appears well, at least to be a, a, a bit of political malpractice on their part when it comes exactly to 2010? I think that's exactly right. I think it is political malpractice. They fell asleep at the wheel and... There, it was a catastrophic failure as a result. Um, they didn't even have to come up with this audacious idea. All they had to do was read about it in the Wall Street Journal <laughs> yes. and be prepared to defend 107 state legislative seats. Mm -hmm. You would think this would not be that hard. Um, but as we all know, the Democratic Party d does a lousy job in off-year elections. Democratic voters do a lousy job of showing up to the polls in non-presidential years. This was a year in which the Tea Party was on the rise. It was the year, mm -hmm. you know, it was it was not long after the town halls about death panels, and right. uh, it was it was it was a, a time of of great Democratic malaise on top of uh -huh. all of the other problems that they have in midterm years, and the party. Um, completely fell asleep at the wheel. They that they that they didn't organize properly, and they didn't see it as a priority. Um, now you could say that they didn't think that the Republicans would pull something off like this that would make them regret their failure for the next decade. 
except for the fact that you know Carl Rove made it clear that he intended to make them pay. Yeah. Um, so there. And it was after and it was after eight years of George W. Bush, and uh, the way we saw uh, the Republicans just absolutely play Democrats every which way uh, and game the system. I mean, how could they not have seen this coming? That's what's remarkable to me, Dave. I, I've got just a, a, a minute or so left yeah. here. Uh, is there a way out of this mess. I mean, if the GOP has this unbreakable lock right now on the U.S. House, uh, how does anything ever change in this regard? Is this a matter of waiting until uh, 2020? And is there any indication, frankly, that 2020 will be any different when it's time for the next nationwide, you know, uh, state redistricting? Uh, or, or is this all well, just the Democrats on say that they're getting ready for 2020? They have a, a pack called Advantage 2020. They're trying to raise $75 million to run the same play. The Republicans did, um, except that the Republicans kind of patted them on the head and said, that's a great idea. We're going to run Red Map 2. We've got $125 million put a- aside for it already. Um, and there's no element of surprise. And the hardest thing is that the Democrats have to win on these maps, which is going to be very difficult. It's not a question of taking back the Congress. It's a question of doing what the Republicans did and looking at the laws state by state, understanding the redistricting process in each one of them, and then trying to earn back seats at the table in Pennsylvania, in North Carolina, in Florida, in all of these places where these districts were so horribly gerrymandered. It's going to be a long, long process. There are a couple of court cases winding their way through the system that could come up with a standard for partisan gerrymandering. I wouldn't, I wouldn't put the, uh, I wouldn't bet the farm on that happening. However, the Democrats have to be thinking ahead and playing a really, really long game. Um, There's also, you know, terrific political reforms that we could come up with, multi-member districts, ranked choice voting, all of these things um, would be a great idea uh, if uh, we ever had the political courage to sort of push for the serious and systemic reform well we will uh we will have to uh save the debate at least over ranked choice voting for the future david daly i'm not a fan uh but we could talk about that at at another time uh i am a fan however of your book that i cannot name but i will call it (laughs) rat flipped the true story behind the secret plan to steal america's democracy uh dave great talking with you about this book uh congratulations on it uh it is it should be getting out to a lot more eyeballs right now uh but for donald trump sucking up the oxygen everywhere uh but hopefully uh, folks will start to uh pay attention including democrats who a need real to start pleasure, Brad. Thank you so way. much. You bet. Uh, thank you, David Daly, uh, formerly editor-in-chief at Salon.com, now a digital media fellow at the University of Georgia's Grady School of Journalism. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Brad. Bye-bye. All right, one more quick break, and we're back with more Bradcast right after this. Brad Friedman, don't go away. <laughs> Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast, both brought to you without corporate or political influence. Why? Because we rely on you to help keep us completely independent. Please drop by bradblog.com donate today and help us stay on your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com donate. You'll thank yourself later. I'll thank you now.
Welcome back to the Bradcast. Another fine mess indeed. I'm Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. My thanks again to David Daly of the University of Georgia. I'm, uh, I'll, I'll tell you, I'm, I'm of two different minds on that entire issue. Uh, you know, the fact that Republic, it's completely unfair. It's completely outrageous, obviously, that, you know, more Americans vote for Democrats uh, for the U.S. House and the Republicans seem to have this death grip on it nonetheless with the majority year after year after year. On the other hand, I'm thinking, you know, um, why didn't Democrats do that? Why didn't Democrats think of that? Why didn't Democrats get their people out uh, in the uh, certainly in the 2010 election when they knew that it was a census election and that was going to result in redistricting all over the country? Um, so anyway, I, I, you know, I don't like to blame voters for anything. I always tend to blame the parties, the candidates, the candidates for not giving voters something to vote for, a reason to show up. And uh, Republicans are just uh, much better at that. You remember Desi Doyen, the uh, contract well, contract with America, Democrats yes. call it the contract on America, and yeah. never mind what those 10 items in that contract actually were. They said, this is our promise. Give us the House. We will do these things. Now, they lied about those things. Those things were terrible, but it, it gave voters a proactive reason to show up at the polls. If I show up at the polls, I will get this. And that's something, you know, uh, Bernie Sanders was very good at. Vote for me and I'll make sure that everyone in the country has access to free college. Whether he could do it or not, that's another issue. But he's giving them a proactive reason to show up at the polls. So. Uh, anyway, a very interesting segment, and uh, my thanks again to Dave Daly. Uh, uh, Bill Mon, our old friend on the Twitter's old school, uh, old school blogger, was noting the, uh, the, the presidential polls and the fact that, uh, who was this? Uh, I think uh, YouGov, I think CBS YouGov, their uh, big tracking poll uh, finds. In their case, it's a three-point race nationally. YouGov, uh, the, and, and looking deep into those, uh, into those tabs of that poll, Bill Mon notes that the percentage of voters who think Donald Trump is not crazy, which is 38%, is six points lower than the percentage who pick him over Hillary Rodham Clinton in the head-to-head -head polling. In other words, he says, there are some number of voters out there who think that Trump is crazy, but... Choose him over Hillary anyway. Oh, wow. <laughs> right? Uh, the number uh, who think, is Hillary crazy? The answer is 29% uh, say, yes, she's crazy. Is Trump crazy? 53% say, yes, he is crazy. And yet, Bill Mon notes, it's still a three-point race. Uh, looking at the words that uh, best describe Donald Trump, uh, is he dangerous? 60% of Americans say yes. Is he crazy? 53% say yes. Is he racist? 49% say yes. Is he bigoted? 48% say yes. And yet it is still a three-point race. What's that about? Any idea? There's a shocking number of Americans who may not consider themselves racist, but they're okay with there being racists around them. Yeah, that's one explanation. Also, the explanation that they may think he's crazy, racist, bigoted, and dangerous, but they still don't trust Donald Trump. Uh, I'm sorry, they still don't trust Hillary Clinton for whatever reason. I would argue due to terrible, terrible 
reporting by the corporate media. For decades now. For decades on Hillary Clinton and uh, in the past year or two, terrible reporting on uh, on Donald Trump and the fact that uh, they're really not, they don't serve the fact-checking function that they should and certainly not in the debates. They haven't uh, served as uh, fact-checkers in the debates, which, by the way, appears to be fine with Janet Brown. She's the executive director of the Commission on Presidential Debates, and she doesn't think it's the job of the moderator to serve as a fact checker. She was asked about this over the weekend on uh, on CNN's Reliable Sources with Brian Stelter. Here's that conversation real quick. What about the issue of fact checking that's been talked about so much in the past few weeks? Does the commission want Lester Holt to fact check? Commission asks independent smart journalists to be the moderators and we let them decide how they're going to do this. But I have to say in our history, the moderators have found it appropriate to let the candidates be the one, ones that talk about the accuracy um, or the fairness of what the other candidate or candidates might have said. I think personally, if you start getting into fact-checking, I'm not sure what is a big fact, what's a little fact. And if you and I have different sources of information, does your source about the unemployment rate agree with my source? I don't think it's a good idea to get the moderator into essentially serving as the Encyclopedia Britannica. And I think it's it's better for that person to facilitate and to depend on the candidates to basically correct each other as they see fit. Well, that's troubling. Very. But uh, nonetheless, we will see what happens. Uh, what happens on the first? I mean, what is the media for if not to fact check? Uh uh, you tell me. Oh, to get ratings, to get ratings and make a whole bunch of money for their corporate masters. And right. they're going to make a whole bunch of money for their corporate masters uh, at the first presidential debate and the vice presidential debate coming up and the second and third presidential debate. The media is going to come out of this just fine. The country, that's another matter. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, today, uh, to David Daly of the University of Georgia, and to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. It's greatly appreciated. If you missed any portion of today's show or any other, download it for free at bradblog.com. You can jump in and uh, toss in a comment on any of our programs there, or you can email me. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. And you can find and follow and harass me on the Facebooks and the Twitters at the Brad Blog. Get the word out about the Bradcast uh, if you don't mind. It would be greatly appreciated. All right, uh, is that it? That's I think it? that's it. Until we meet again, our big debate coverage on the next thrilling episode of the Bradcast. God save us all. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. <laughs> <laughs>